1: A few months ago, we released an episode about NBA Top Shot that left our audience as confused as us, yet it wasn't about how to buy it or how to sell it or even why it's so popular. There were questions about money. Is it too late to jump into the market? What's its long-term value? For that matter, how is it valued at all? Because every day we're previewed the limited sides of the story by accounts online. But this week, our guest, Corey Leavenworth, who is a currency trader and an artist himself, Paints a different picture. This was our longest show to date, and after you hear it, you'll understand why. So, thanks to Corey, and lastly, thank you to our show sponsor and friends over at Underdog Fantasy. Now, let's jump right in. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Clear the Cash. I'm your host, Nate Liss. You can find me on Twitter, at an outraged Jew. And with me, of course, is Mr. Jesse Bach. You can find him on Twitter, at planet underscore fatness. And tonight, we have a great guest with us. This is somebody that listened to one of our prior episodes where we were talking about Top Shot NFTs in general and I put a call out to the world and said listen we need somebody that has a fiscal background we need somebody that understands economics there's a lot more to this than just the hype that we all feel for things that we have a inherent bias towards and so a guy by the name of Corey Leavenworth you can find him on Twitter at fantasy numbers reached out and said hey I check a lot of the boxes of the guy that you're looking for. So he's on with us tonight. Corey, thank you for coming on, man. How's it going? It's going good.
2: Thank you for having me, guys.
1: Yeah, not a problem at all. I know Jesse's excited. We've been talking about this back and forth. We tried to make this happen over the past couple weeks. uh, Really just couldn't nail it down. Um, So I'm glad that we can make this thing, uh, you know, finally a reality because I know that you've got a lot of – Really, uh, you know, unique theories and thoughts, and obviously things that are based on reality out there that rarely get talked about as part of the reason why we're seeing some of the trends that we're seeing. So Corey, I mean, let's let's go right off the top here. so just so people can get an idea of kind of who you are and what you're about. what what is your background?
2: Yeah, no problem. Um, so I studied finance and economics in school. I graduated right around the global financial crisis in in 2008. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a job at a commodity futures in foreign exchange trading firm. Um, I passed my series three, got a job as a broker working on the currency trading side on the uh, speculative retail side for about four years. Um, From there, I transitioned my currency trading to the corporate hedging side, um, where I was a foreign exchange dealer for a few years providing foreign exchange solutions to to U.S. corporates um, by way of of FX spot and forward contracts. Um, And then I kind of worked on on the opposite side of the phone. I got a job working for uh, a large U.S. corporate in their treasury division, uh, managing a portfolio of foreign currency derivatives um, to hedge against our our, our foreign currency exposure. Um, So, yeah, it kind of led me here. I've been working in the markets for about 12 years um, I heard your original podcast and and reached out.
1: Yeah, man. I mean, and a lot of that, admittedly, even for me who I don't have a ton of experience in a lot of the areas that you're, you know, addressing at this point, a lot of that goes over my head, Corey, I'm going to be honest with you. That was, that was a foreign language to me. I don't know if it was for Jesse, but it certainly felt like it was for me.
0: I'm just in the healthcare and card world anything else. I'm not really, uh, I'm not too versed with, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit and that's a little bit above my head too.
1: So Corey, you also mentioned, um, when you were reaching out, uh, that you are an artist or you do artwork on the side, you do physical art, even though this is an episode that has a lot to do with digital art. Right. So I have been painting
2: on canvas for about, I mean, my entire life, about 28 years. Um, so I do abstract acrylic, and so the whole NFT space was was really interesting to me because I, I think a, a big benefit of the blockchain and NFTs is really connecting kind of buyers and sellers. Um, because me painting canvases and and kind of advertising on on Instagram and you know local kind of galleries and shops, I, I have an extremely small kind of audience who who I'm selling to. Um, so I think it's really interesting the whole NFT space and in digital art, really connecting uh, buyers and sellers globally. Um, I mean, the, the, the technology behind it is very interesting, but uh, but the price action is uh, obviously
1: uh, for the reason of discussion today. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, but it's great because you've got this background in the economics; you understand. The, the art side of things and what these people that are creating this content or these, you know, again, these NFTs are are what their goal is, what they're looking for. So it's a good space to come from, because, again, some of the backlash on the last episode was that the episode was very biased, that we sounded like two guys that were into cardboard and had nothing and no interest uh, to do with anything digital And I certainly didn't want it to come off that way, but admittedly, when we looked at the market and the trends that were taking place, they didn't correlate whatsoever to what we were seeing in the card market in a space where we expect to see a little bit of similarity between two commodities that do share parallels, right? So I'm glad that you came on today now your Twitter handle is at fantasy numbers. So I'm gathering that you do some fantasy football gaming yourself and maybe do a little research and and data homework. Is that true?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it it is true. I mean, uh, this podcast is going to be about economics, art, fantasy football. I mean, it's literally straight up my alley. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a, it really is a small world. So, I've been playing fantasy football now for a little over 10 years. Um, I started this kind of casual, you know, high school redraft kind of a format. Um, and then I discovered you and Matt in and in kind of wrote a Wonderworld, um, which led me to playerprofiler.com, which led me to the, the statistics and analytics that that, that provides. Um, so, which led me then to getting a voucher for FFPC best ball. Um, and now, kind of a hundred plus leagues later, um I've really kind of enjoyed that. So I, I think best ball is very unique in the sense that it's extremely close in the the rules and regulations to redraft. Um, and I think a lot of people think best ball is kind of redraft plus upside. Um, when in reality, I think it has a lot of upside to do with managing your exposures um, and managing risk. I, I think, if you join a few leagues that are, are kind of high in value, um, but you're in less than ten of them, you know some of your player exposure is you know thirty-three percent, fifty percent. But if you draft a large portion of best balls, it really allows you um, to have a bold take or not a take on a player in draft, zero exposure, you know fifty percent exposure, um, and then kind of smooths out the variance in the meantime. So um, that kind of led me to player profiler. And then kind of the one person in our very sh- small Twitter sphere that I agree with quite a bit and agrees a little bit with me is, is your boy, Josh Lark- is Josh Larky. Yeah. So um, it's kind of funny how, how small the world is. So um, kind of that, that small listening to, to Roto Underworld brought me to uh, those analytics. And now um, I'm kind of head over heels into best ball. And
1: I, I love that format. I, I just, I love that you brought up Josh Larkey because as I'm hearing you say the things that you're saying <laughs> from your intro to what you just said there, I'm like I, this guy, I got to hook him up with Josh Larky. If Josh isn't already following him or talking to him, they need to, because I feel like you both have a very data driven sort of binary process and that's a great way to play. I mean, especially if you're in it for money, I like to play loose. I put probably way too loose at times. Um, but just like you said, your, your exposure, you know, really buying in on a player. It gives you the opportunity to truly sell out on somebody you believe in. I know Josh does a ton of homework. It sounds like you do a ton of homework. So I'm really excited. Um, you know, people check him out on Twitter at fantasy numbers. Again, I was making a joke earlier pre-show about at fantasy numbers. Like that to me, like, I think everybody that creates a fantasy account is trying to get that name. And I'm sure you must have a crazy amount of views on your account that you don't even know about because people are just like, son of a bitch. The name's been taken because it really is a good name. I'm sure that's what Josh Larky was going for before he inevitably had to settle on his own name.
2: I know you kind of see the the available domain names. And once you see one that kind of has uh, the availability, you just kind of jump on it. So, um, yeah, I saw it. It was available. I took it. And uh, we're going from there
1: yeah i mean you're a champion forever because of it i mean obviously nobody was after my name and certainly nobody was after jesse's <laughs> name whatsoever um but i know jesse really wants to get into this episode he wants to pick your brain and i do too so jesse take it away
0: yeah honestly with uh with my name if anything i'm probably having people that are headhunting for me no to <laughs> especially uh <laughs> The corporate leaders over at planet fitness probably they probably blocked my account already and they're trying to figure out where i live just because just because of my name um but uh yeah corey honestly i i you know i found nate the same way i was a loyal listener to the sonic truth pod and and all the all the podcasts on the roto underworld network and and breakout finder for years bef- before um you know i reached out to nate and and you know basically you utilized my um, resource of uh, playerprofiler.com and the breakout finder to actually like help me with uh, what I think uh, you know having a pretty significant advantage in the card game um, so yeah it, it sounds like we kind of we kind of reached out to Nate in, you know almost the same exact way but um, just to kind of kick things off I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, what, what do you think about the overall concept of of Top Shot and and NF and the NFT market in general
2: Yeah, no, that's a that's a fair question. Um, And I think you brought it up uh, best last in in the podcast where we talked about NFTs. And you said it's very much in its infancy stage. And when we look at an asset and especially TopShot that that kind of um, I know it started earlier in 2020, but really kind of picked up uh, the momentum in 21. It's it's kind of like an IPO um, when the fact that as soon as it debuts, you don't really have a lot of history. Uh, on what it is, and especially when it kind of breaks into a new sector, you don't have a lot of comparables in, in that sense. So you kind of have uh, the blockchain element. You have um, the the ridiculous kind of economic status that we're all in. Um, so I mean, it, it's it's a very interesting conversation, and I think anyone that that proclaims that they are an expert in trying to guess what will be valuable in the next fifteen years. Um, is maybe a little too hyper bullish um, in, in a certain sector. And, and, and nobody really knows. And I, I, as I told Nate, that it kind of really sets up the conversation for kind of an open dialogue and really see what we've seen in the past, um, what are the current economic conditions, and, and really where we're going. So um, I think Top Shot kind of brings about three points that kind of bring Top Shot um, to where it is and, and also... Most importantly, b- besides the, the technology, the price. I think the price action is what has really uh, driven the headlines. So um, as we look at the first point, we can look at where are we in terms of an economy? Um, so we kind of take a look back to, to 2008 and we see that we've maintained a, a massive uh, initiation of, of quantitative easing. So when we had the real estate scare in 2008, we instituted a massive money supply, uh, pro-lending. I mean, it's a very risk, a pro-risk kind of a a monetary policy. So we saw that, um, and the market realized right away that we love low interest rates. We love these growth (laughs) companies. We love these tech companies that uh, we currently have tech companies that produce uh, negative net income, but we somehow still pay CEOs uh, and below that. I mean, millions and billions of dollars. So they've really indirectly through VCs or directly through the bond market, taken advantage of a flattened yield curve. And what they've really done is they've given themselves a runway to profitability. So they don't need to show they're profitable in 2021. They need to show growth in that they have the potential uh, for future runway kind of in the future. So What that has really done is exasperated um, inequality in wealth. Um, And it's really kind of uh, peaked up the the froth in the bubble to really take risk in in, in saying, what has my fiat done for me lately? And what can I do to maintain a a big uh, sort of speculative return um, in in the short term? Um, So we saw in February, we saw Treasury yields rise. And we saw crypto fall 20%. We saw these frothy tech companies kind of fall uh, a big trunk, and uh, and the risk really is the tech moving forward. These companies that really don't have um, really any sort of profit on on the balance sheets um, to step forward. So that kind of takes us into where we currently are. Um, and then we had kind of the mother of all uh, government-led recessions, and, and that came in the form of COVID. So COVID. Um, you know, for the positive or negative was a government-led recession where the government told you not to drive, not to spend money on uh, travel, not to spend money in in the restaurants. And this led to $1.6 trillion of pent-up income. We see this with Trump and Biden really pushing a fiscal um, agenda forward where we're giving stimulus checks. Um, we're, we're really, you know, flowing this free money economy where we have people in the hospitality and the restaurant industry that have been unable to come back to work because in all 50 states, we're now paying people in the lowest income not to come back to work. And they're now getting more money um, from the government. So we have a lot of people kind of sitting at home being told that they can't go back to work. Um, We have record low interest rates. um, And we see this recession and we see that certain recessions are systemic disease. But COVID was global. We saw the unison um, sort of collective effort by all central banks to push their interest rates down to zero um, and really push the the fiscal help that was needed. So um, yeah, 3% of people absolutely um, helped, were were helped via uh, the policies and were, were kind of helped from being on their ass. But we saw a lot of people also be pushed towards risk-taking assets. Um, and that's really kind of where we were with the GME and in the and the whole you know, meme stonks era. Um, we saw that with certain crypto. And now we see that um in, in this sector as well. So that kind of leads us to our conversation today.
1: So I guess what it, it makes me wonder is is this just the perfect storm? Again, people you know stuck at home, pent up, you know, disposable income. <clears throat> and a great product? Or like Jesse asked the question about sort of the top shot in general, is the product itself something that you see viability in? I mean, is it a good product? Or again, is this just really people not having anything to spend money on? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, first and foremost, I
2: think people need to be aware that the world is extremely gray and it's not black and white. And it's possible for there to be a lot of bored, pent-up income with these risk-perverse assets, um, and also, I mean, NFTs and, and Topstrap being maybe long-term viable. I, I think it's very well in the realm of possibilities um, for this to have some sort of long-term runway. Um, but at the same time, you see a lot of people that, at, at this point in time, when we're recording in April, are, are kind of stuck at home, um, and have some time in front of the screen. We've seen employers be able to trust employees that they are able to to kind of sit at home in front of their screen um, and do the same work. So uh, it really is interesting to kind of give a a quick preview into the so-called metaverse. Um, We've seen employers be able to realize that their employees' uh, location really doesn't matter. Uh, And I think that will eventually lead to increased competition in the workforce and employers be able to find better employees if they remove the whole location aspect. Um, So I I think it's hard. I think you can't judge the long-term view of Top Shots without seeing the actual long-term view. Um, I mean, we really haven't had any type of economic slowdown um, in a very long long time. So, I mean, we look at baseball cards. They've been around for 150 years. They've been around... Um, you know, a lot of different economic cycles that we have seen. Uh, you know, you look at people that collect cards like yourself, they aren't looking that at the day-to-day mark-to-market of their card. They're not selling when it goes down 10%. You know, they're they're more inept to to pass it down to different generations. So um I think Jesse's had a best where we're in the infancy stage and we really don't know until that price action kind of recedes. You know, what happens to your average NBA top shot consumer? when your mortgage interest rate doubles, when your uh, auto loan doubles, when you have to go back to work, when the stimulus packages stop, um, when the presumed inflation comes in Q3, Q4 this year. Now, what will really happen to that sector? Um, And then also, what happens to that sector when we have increased supply? So if we see Dapper Labs branch off to baseball, NFL, soccer, if we see celebrities, if we see musicians, um, you know, what does this money supply do um, when that sort of expands? And I think a lot of people that we've seen on NBA Top Shots have been falling into two categories. We've seen people that are very heavy into crypto um, and we see maybe some, some NBA fans as well. So what happens when this expands um, and we see, you know, nine, tenfold the, the market share? I, I really, I really don't know what what happens with tighter economic uh, conditions plus exorbitant supply. Um, and Jesse, you kind of mentioned last time uh, there was a LeBron James card that sold for like a quarter of a million that was of a fifty. Um, so I, I guess can you talk a bit about the supply and how that compares against the the card market versus? You know, we, we see a kind of a, a trap supply in NBA Top Shot. And then the long term, we see there there could be, you know, much, much, much higher supply. Um, so, yeah.
0: Well, at least for, I mean, for right now in, in cards, well, in, in Top Shot, we only have a couple months worth of data. If, like, if that, because, you know, I, I know this... I know uh Dapper Labs and and, and Top Shot all, all came about in twenty twenty, but really like it, it hasn't reached the mainstream until January of twenty twenty one. So we we don't have nearly as much data, whereas with you know, a LeBron James Gold Tops Chrome Refractor rookie card has you know, we're going on eighteen years of data here. So um I I mean I know right now we're in we're in more of a bull market, but just we just we just have a lot more sales history of of a card, even if it's that scarce, even if only 50 of them exist. And regardless of condition, um, at, at least we just have you know, we, we just, we, we have the data and, and it's, I mean, it's a physical asset. It's something that people have been collectors and and people who have been in it for more investment purposes. Um, they have been trying to, to acquire it at some point in time and especially LeBron collectors and people that, you know, I, I know of people that, that do have that card personally and, you know, they don't, they're not looking to part with it anytime soon like the, the you know we we have a term called coffin cards where um basically they they don't even there are some people that don't even want to pass it down to their kids they just want they want to be buried with it and it's you know it's gone forever so um but then then again there are other people that um you know once once they're kind of you know at, at the end of their their lives or if they want to prepare for retirement or something Um, maybe they'll pass it down to their, you know, their kids or other future generations. And, you know, they, they can have that for as long as they want to, you know, to help start their lives and, and their children's lives. So, um, we, we're definitely dealing with, uh, in terms of cards, there, there's much more of, um, of a nostalgia factor and there, there's a little bit more of a chase and, and, you know, a collector base than something like, like the NFT space.
1: My my concern, you know, concern with this too, Corey. You brought this up. You said, "What happens when mortgage rates double? What happens when auto rates double?" And I made a statement on the podcast that we've been referring to from a couple of weeks back, and I basically said nobody who bought Top Shots did it because they saw long-term viability in the hold. Everybody was playing this short-term game. Everybody saw these no-name a uh, uh, block of fifty thousand going for, you know two grand or three grand and everybody thought that they had a ton of value because if you're on top shot, it shows your, you know, your value of your assets. So people treated it like that was, you know, some sort of real value. I guess my concern is when we look at cards, we know that there's a long-term value in cards. It's been going on for decades. We know what's worth what we know, what will have long-term value based on its rarity. But you made a statement earlier. You said, nobody knows. And that's my concern with top shot overall is that, Nobody knows the outcome, but yet a lot of people are telling you, buy, buy, buy. It's going to be great. Look at this LeBron that sold for a quarter million dollars. That's the future. When in reality, I stand by my statement that nobody who bought Top Shot didn't list everything that they got, right? Like everything that you got is on the market. There's nobody that bought something and is just holding everything in the background, if that makes sense. I think that's my biggest concern with it.
0: I think genuinely with from like a collector's perspective too out of out of any NFT maybe not NFT more probably more top shot um out of their entire user base or the history of their user base I can see 0.01 to 0.05% of that whole user base actually seeing this as a viable collectible and may and whether or not they it they have um, intentions to, you know, invest it and, and sell it at, and sell it decades down the road, or just have it just to have, and, you know, maybe over time, it just naturally appreciates, like if, if we can maybe top shot something like, uh, like the, like the 20, I think it was the 2016 NBA finals, LeBron series saving dunk, basically in game. I think it was in game seven. Um, like that, that might be something that if, if, if nfts can be viable in the future that might be something that that can actually you know become iconic and mm-hmm. and actually be worth something down the road and i just wanted to kind of take it uh take it back to your um your artistic side and, and you said you said you've been painting for a little bit um do you think that your appreciation like how is your appreciate appreciation of art impacted how you see or if you even see nfts as an art form in general
2: yeah i I think first things first as an abstract artist i I can't subject anybody to any negative emotions if it you know if it calls to you um you know i am an abstract artist so if somebody says they like something and it calls to them and they like it i'm the'm I'm, I'm the last person. To call them, you know, incorrect in that sense, um, you know, art has always been of eye of, of, of the beholder, um, but I, I think with this NFT space, um, sort of two things. I, I think one, you know, what how close are we to the quote unquote metaverse? You know, did that start kind of with the the Pokemon Go and, and people are walking around and, and kind of in their physical world collecting that, um, you know, versus people. Uh, collecting art and, and showing them to their internet friends on their computer. Uh, I think we have to keep in mind that, you know, less than 4% of the population is on Twitter. And of that population, you know, how much has the exposable income to invest in something that they look at the PC, look at their PC about? Um, I think we also see that we're in a, a cusp of massive opening in the country. You know, we're, we're right around 25% inoculation, uh, our goal is 70% to really open the economy back up, as the FOMC has said. Um, so kind of when we see that massive explosion in leisure, in, in hotel, in kind of retail, uh, are people going to want to show their internet friends uh, their their gift that they paid, you know, whatever Ethereum for? Um, so I, I think it's very hard. I, I think you see um, the quote unquote future as moving towards the metaverse. I think erosion of that physical landscape. Um, I think there's a lot of bullish sides. I think the, the the favorite thing that Wall Street has is a new sector. So I think if luxury goods and architecture kind of move towards the metaverse and they see that as kind of a, a new wallet share, that absolutely opens up a new kind of precipice for how we classify GDP versus the physical world versus uh, the metaverse. So as the population explodes and as location kind of, uh, erodes, it's very interesting kind of, kind of how that, uh, um, you know, moves forward. But I think you see a lot of people that invest in crypto that a few years ago, who I talked to had zero interest in digital art, but all of a sudden, because you kind of put a border around the scarcity and there's a ledger of who made it and who bought it, all of a sudden it's thousands of times the, 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 you know, the value it would have been. So, um, Kind of a contrarian take. I I do wonder if the quantitative easing in the appreciation of assets, uh, including crypto being a risk asset, has appreciated towards that. You see people that are paying, um, you know, 50 Ethereum for uh, an art art piece, and it kind of hits the magazines as, you know, look at how big this purchase has been, when in reality, this person may have just been you know, kind of a tech savant and a purchase of Ethereum for a few thousand dollars. And now it's worth this kind of this price tag amount that's kind of hit the headlines. When in reality, they weren't really a big art collector and they may have just been appreciative because of this massive black swan event um, within COVID. So it's a, you know, it's a very interesting topic and nobody has the answers. Um, But let's say this, let's say I have an abstract piece of art and I say, hey, Nate Liss, Uh, I'll sell this to you for $5,000. And you say, um, you know, no, thank you. Uh, Watch this. And you can simply copy that or recreate that. You would never pay me $5,000 for a one-of-one piece that you can simply recreate down to the absolute pixel. You wouldn't do that. And then if Jesse was looking for a piece of abstract art and he saw your piece for $100 and my piece for $5,000, but I said, hey, Jesse, my piece has a fraction bit of metadata that says I am the original. You don't care. You know, that's something that's placed in your home. Um, So it's very difficult to kind of, you know, differentiate the digital from the physical um, when there's not a person on the planet that can recreate my sort of art. I can't recreate my art once once I paint it versus if you have a digital painting if you do a digital piece of artwork uh, you can sell it as a one for one and then a week later you know you can edit that piece and and theoretically change the color or or something else and all of a sudden you can then adjust the scarcity of it whereas you know if I do artwork it is literally one of one I couldn't reproduce that abstract art if I tried a hundred times over. So somehow somebody that does digital art, but places some sort of border of scarcity around it is worth 100, 1,000 times more than than my artwork. Um, but then again, it, it is all the eye of the beholder. I was in in an art competition a few years ago um, and somebody beat me by by quite a bit of votes who just, I, I think they they had the word war written in like blood or like grass seed. And it was like way more worth (laughs) more than mine. And it's like, you know, I I really don't understand that. I,
1: it brings me back to, you know, art is very subjective, right? Whether it's price, who loves it, who doesn't love it. I kind of want to ask you this question. As somebody that clearly spent a lifetime doing art, you kind of made a statement there where you mentioned that if somebody can create a one-of-one digital piece of artwork, And then they can alter it simply by changing the color or some variants to it. Very simple. Does that, I mean, does that bother you from the standpoint that I would imagine what you do takes a lot of effort? And then you see something like this. It's very simple. And and even the statements you just made where this one person decided to do something brazen and they created this very, you know, uh, something that was supposed to be, you know, self-meaning or important moment. And then they, they, it's worth more than yours is when in reality, what you've done is probably incredible in its own Right. But then you look at these NFTs that are going for hundreds of thousands, not if millions of dollars, and they could take literally no time to put together and some may take more time. But is that something that kind of irks you a little bit? <laughs> uh, no, 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 not at all. Um, I mean, as I told friends and family, as
2: they asked me, how do they get into the trading of uh, of the meme stocks? You know, get yours and get out. And, and I'm extremely happy for you. You know, good for the people that kind of saw this coming um, and, and took the effort to, to list their art and really take advantage of, of the technology And hand. So uh, no, I, I hold zero kind of grudges against people that have sold art for more than me. Um, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I, I, I sincerely love making a piece. And when I put a price tag on it, that's above cost. It makes me laugh every single time, whether it's, you know, two times above cost or 10 times above cost. I'm like, I, I would have made this anyway. And, you know, it, it's a little secret that I have that, you know, I would sell this to you for at cost if you really begged <laughs> for it. <Right>. Um, <laughs> so, you no, know, right. it, it really doesn't hurt me too much. Um, you know, it's it's not paying my mortgage, so to speak. Um, sure. It's sure. been kind of a hobby all my life since I, I've worked in finance. So, um, I mean, if anything, the blockchain has really enabled people to connect buyers and sellers. And I think above the authentication of who made it, or, you know, the the ledger or where it is, or if it's authentic, I think connecting with the buyers and sellers is the massive point that will be proven over the next few decades. Um, you know, my audience, um, despite people who, who may have seen my Instagram, like I said, is people out of coffee shops. Um, I have artwork at, at random kind of, um, you know, barbers and flower shops in, in my local Midwest city. Um, but digital art kind of gives you the landscape that it really um, efficiently kind of sorts the the supply and demand and eventually I think you know d- despite just kind of being first in line I think that the the, the top the, the cream of the crop will kind of rise in the nft space and the best art eventually um i I think it will will create a really nice landscape for artists. Um, and you know what, if somebody wasn't into art a few years ago that because of this, they, they got into art, then, you know, I, I I champion them and I thank you for, for kind of entering, um, the segment. So, um, it's a very interesting topic and I know a lot of people kind of bring up, you know, copying the Mona Lisa and it kind of looks the same. Um, you know, you look at a Monet and if somebody can take a Monet and, you know, if you've ever seen a Monet in person, you know, some of them are, are 20 feet long. Um, if somebody can replicate a Monet with a paintbrush and you can't tell the difference, um, then that painting is probably worth a lot of money. Right. Um, so I, I think right. we, we say this digital copy thing very, you know, in, in our 280 characters or less. But in reality, if somebody can paint the Mona Lisa with a paintbrush and you can't tell the difference, um, you know, that, that, that that's an incredible Artist, Um, and and kind of as that broaches the the topic of of kind of you know frauds and and kind of um, you know copies, um, I I think that that's very popular in movies and in media. But in reality, um, you know, copying art and fiat—that's an extremely low percentage of of the population. Is it a big deal uh, on the large scale? Yes, it is. Um, But in reality, if you had a, a very nice oil painting you paid like five grand for, um, trust me, it's never going to be an issue that that was a replica of somebody else that made a painting worth worth, worth $5,000.
1: Right. No, I, I totally agree. And it's just interesting because, you know, we, we talk about making copies of things. And I think there's people out there that might not understand that despite the fact that these are document, you know, they're on the ledger, they're on the blockchain. We know that Corey Leavenworth was the creator. This is the first of this kind. But now we've made a copy of it you know, and it's, it's become its own thing as well. You're the originator of it. There's people out there that, like you said earlier, they may not care that the original version is worth more if they can just have a copy of, it. I mean, it's the same thing when people buy prints, I would assume versus, you know, an original. I know lots of people that have bought prints and some prints go for a lot of money. There are some artists out there that sell and they've made thousands of the same print and they still go for a lot of money. Um, I don't know that that's a thing yet that the, the, the fraud is a thing yet. I'm sure it's something to be worried about in the future, especially kind of the questions for me with artwork. Um, and maybe you've done some thinking about this as somebody that's clearly, you know, deep in the art world. How does, how is digital art to be displayed in the future? Right. Are we, do we picture some sort of, uh, you know, like a digital frame that holds things? I mean, kind of, where do you see digital art going? Yeah. That,
2: that that's a very interesting uh topic of conversation is is really when does that quote unquote metaverse kind of take hold? And I think what people are understanding is the, the, the equation of when is new art in a metaverse digital world going to take place when you're kind of wearing these VR goggles. And you're kind of emerging with your 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 internet friends, and you have your your house, and you know all of your paintings. Um, I don't know when that's going to be, but what I can tell you is that we will have a new bearish economic cycle before that is mainstream. Um, so I, I think that that's a big thing to recognize: is um, a lot of people look at the micro in investments, but when in reality the the macro always holds true. And we saw that with COVID. Um, I mean we saw some of the most profitable companies of all time tank during the, the COVID collapse in, in last uh, last Q1 mixing with Q2. Um so I, I really don't know where, where that kind of lands. I know that you know eventually um I, I really do think the metaverse will take hold in that location uh specific will will erode. Um, but as far as what happens you know from now until then, I don't know. I, I think we have a-, a good case study in uh, the stock of Tilray. So Tilray is a marijuana producer um, that IPO about thirty dollars. Uh, shortly after IPO, it was up to 300, I think in60 dollars. In um, now if you were to go back in time and you told those Tilray invest- investors at 300 that you know what? Uh, A few years down the line, marijuana is going to continue to legalize. It is going to move off the black market onto the official market. We're going to see a massive uh, state-by-state kind of uh, deregulation of marijuana. You know, that person would have probably bought more. But Tillery went from $350 to about $5. So I I think investments in trading is always a representation of how far in the future can I pull those future cash flows present? And I think a lot of people in the NFT um, and NBA top shot space have said, listen, we're moving towards this digital world. I know that's where it's going and it's gonna be worth more in the future. So you gotta pay me 20X what it's worth now because I know this is gonna be there in the future. Um, but again, we don't see people, you know, bottling fresh water in land and selling it for a hundred times what it's currently worth now. So um, as we see kind of investments, it's kind of this this, this uh, saying we say, uh, buy the rumor, sell the fact. And we saw that with Coinbase as, as soon as it debuted, it tanked. Um, you know, how do you represent future cost representation versus what is happening now? And I think a lot of people see this world moving digital correctly. Um, I, I am a, a big bull of the metaverse. Um, but where that lies in the current price I mean,
1: it's really anyone's guess. That I mean, that honestly brings me to the question that I want to ask you is the valuation of these moments in Top Shots specifically, right? So we saw LeBron James' Cosmic Dunk moment sold for, I think, $208,000. Now, a- again, as somebody that's heavily into the card thing, it makes me roll my eyes a bit. But when I take a step back and I think about the world of art, uh, it's not so crazy to me that, as you mentioned before, in the eyes of the beholder – to someone this is worth $208,000, right? And is that where we're at or is there actually some sort of baseline that we can use as an indicator to truly value these things?
2: Yeah, I mean, we really don't have that. I mean, re- we really don't have history. We don't have price action. We don't see you know, what, what occurs during a bear market. You know, I'm very curious if we had this froth of NBA top shots during the COVID crisis, when we saw everybody in every firm sell every single risk asset and buy U.S. dollars, you know what would that mean to NBA Top Shot? And I think that kind of brings me back to um, we look at the the Dutch tulip bubble. Uh, we saw the the Viceroy tulip that was five times the size of your average house. And I think you have your average investor that has these NBA top shots, that is, we'll just say kind of a, you know, a a middle income type individual, a middle risk kind of averse kind of person. And, you know, they put $1,000 into a risk asset and and all of a sudden it's up a thousand X. And they say, you know, I have a car payment, I have a mortgage, I have all of these bills. And at the end of the day, you know, are they going to hold for that purple Lamborghini? or are they going to hold um, for the the utility that they have kind of sitting in front of them? Um, And when I was a broker, this is what I told people all the time, is is trader psychology is the number one killer uh, of profit. Before you enter into any sort of risk asset, you have to understand what is the risk capital that I have put forward? And then what is the loss I am willing to take? And then as this accumulates, what sort of profit am I willing to, to, to sort of give up? Because if a if thousand people, you know, hold out for that lime green, purple Lamborghini, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'll I'll tell you, just as math tells us, 999 will end up, you know, blowing their account up. Um, and that one person may be rich. So I think at the very tip of the quote unquote end cycle that we're in, um, you have to imagine that COVID came right at the absolute frothy tip of the bull market. We saw, you know, a little bit of protectionism with Trump in the trade war. Um, we saw a little bit of jostulations in the market there. But, you know, we really were kind of at the end of that market in starting to, to, to raise interest rates. And then we had kind of the, the, this black swan event. Um, so, I, I mean, the answer to the question, I, I really don't know. Um, you know, it'd be really interesting if we did this exact podcast in eight years, and we kind of did a a case study looking back after we see kind of treasury yields rise, mortgages rise, commodity prices rise, your average day goods rise, people going back to work, people spending money on gas in their cars driving to work. Um, And we kind of see a return to normalization. Um, I, I don't know where we are. I don't know if, honestly, as I said, I don't know if we would be having this conversation if it wasn't for covid
0: I was just thinking, you know, especially now with the, um, you know, with, with the lack of sales data and, and, you know, what's crazy is that this market only came about, you know, almost a year into COVID. So it really makes me wonder, like, let's say if we kind of try to, I don't want to, I don't, you know, I keep trying to, I, I keep comparing, uh, cards to to nfts or nfts to the card market but the card market was actually it was booming in 2019 going into 2020 it had a pretty good year run it was it was a more healthy run um than than something like the nft craze in in 2021 but um while the country was shut down in uh, in march of 2020 um the c- collectibles in general and and the card market took took a quite a bit of a hit like 25 to 30 percent of basically the overall card market went down and then all of a sudden people that were that were in it since 2019 they just saw this as a buy opportunity and then prices just started going up like crazy especially with with people's uh, free time at home um you know here we i i honestly i don't know if if uh, if NFTs would have had the same bull run in in uh, March of 2020 as cards did, I mean I could be totally wrong, but we're we're just not seeing as as much of uh, as 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 much data there, and and we're not seeing like you know like a more healthy
1: appreciation and and
0: increase in value.
1: I think the thing that concerned me the most uh, just about this in general, and the reason that I'm so glad you came on here is that. I see a lot of influencers, and many of them are people that I follow and and friends of mine, and they're really pushing the positive side of this, that it makes it feel like there's no bad can happen. And I guess with what you do for a living and and all the research that you do, I guess my question would be, are we at the bottom of this yet? I mean, is this this as bad as things are going to be, or is there something in the future, a wave coming that people should keep considering when they decide to dive into things, whether it is cards, whether it is NFTs?
2: Yeah, no, th- th- that's fair, and especially with something that that's extremely early on. Um, when you talk about kind of support and resistance, and and kind of buying the dip, um, we have an extremely small uh, set of sample. Um, we have to understand that NBA Top Shot w- was kind of the first on the scene, and 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 kind of give them credit. Um, so I would really like to see, you know, how this crypto risk assets kind of flow. During during a bear market, we really haven't seen it, and we see really a, a new generation of speculators that uh, have never seen a bear market before. They're really asking the question, you know, what has my USD dollars kind of kind of done for me? Um, when in the background, they don't know that you know the U.S. dollar um, ha- has been the lubrication for global trade. Um, it's the reason why you have the deflationary pressure. Uh, it's the reason why you have Uh, cheap labor that gives you the the cheap costs that you have. Um, I I think a lot of media has kind of pushed uh, the the money supply aspect of this, but they haven't really looked at the velocity as well. So quantitative easing um, is not so much about money printing, but it's also about encouraging uh, the spending. Um, And we really, really haven't seen that too much. Um, So as we kind of look at what's in the future, um there's the deflationary crowd and there's the inflationary crowd so on the deflationary crowd we we kind of say that listen technology has been a huge aspect in driving prices down apple somehow produces in china and has a camera on their phone that you know 8 years ago was worth $5000 um so we have that kind of cheap labor we see uh corporate tax rates falling quite a bit um so th- there's that kind of aspect of deflation. We see when there's, you know, fear in the streets, people kind of hoard money. Um, and then on the inflationary aspect, we have, uh, listen, we, we, today we printed retail sales. We've seen CPIs. We've seen purchasing manufacturing. Um, we've seen the highest purchasing manufacturing since 1992 mixed with the lowest inventories possible. So we're seeing this accumulation in a rise of commodity, commodity costs with um you know sort of this pressure of constrained supply chains we have cpg companies that had a run on their products and dry goods a year ago today you know how do they plan for their inventories when they rely on something that grows from the ground um it's extremely hard so we have that um and also we have uh, a government-led recession so we have people that haven't spent money on leisure travel gas eating out that have really had this $1.6 trillion kind of sitting on the sideline. Um, and so, for instance, somebody that that drives to work that hasn't done it in a year, how do you replicate uh, what you've spent in gas when you have to go back to the office? You, you can't spend that twice. You can't kind of make that hole and spend what you would have in 2020 in gas in 2021. So I I do wonder if people will spend that on leisure as the uh, inoculation rate continues. Um, And I really think that that points us to the the topic of discussion of NBA Top Shots of what does that mean for the Federal Reserve? So the Fed has a few mandates as far as inflation. Uh, We look at maximum employment before they raise interest rates. And the Fed has told you um, you know over and over again we are not in a hurry to raise interest rates inflation no matter how skewed how we measure it uh we're not going to raise rates until, until 2023 we saw New Zealand in 1989 really take a look at how we measure uh inflation and funny enough since then uh how we measure inflation has gone down so there's there's no there's no secret that you know, Members of Congress are able to hold individual names and that we greatly benefit from low interest rates from a a frothy risk asset point of view. We saw Trump um, over Twitter tell Jerome Powell, uh, don't you dare raise interest rates or or, you're pretty much fired. Um, So this kind of frothy appetite um, has really set us up where we are. Um, But we'll really see. I mean, we're due to see the biggest rise in economic activity in 40 years. Um, So. Nothing right now really matters. What matters is when we get to Q3 and we kind of see how we spend that money. So as we kind of see inoculation rates hit 70 percent, um, we kind of see this crowd immunity come forth. We see businesses sort of open up. Um, you know, what happens to inflation when, when we have too little goods with the supply can, supply constraints and we have too many of the dollars and we really see inflation pick up? Uh, we then will see interest rates rise, cost of living go up. People have to return back to the office. Uh, What happens then? Especially if you increase the supply of these moments and you have other sports, celebrities, uh, musicians. Um, So I I really don't know where the price action goes. Um, It it really should be interesting to to see what happens when we see a a pullback in risk assets to to something like these NFTs.
1: Matt Kelly on the last podcast, he he asked me a question about Uh, top shot in general and what I thought and we, where was it at today? Because obviously you're aware it took a pretty significant hit recently. A lot of people saw massive dips, which it happens in all markets. So not to crap on anything, but there was a pretty massive dip recently. And one of the points that he made, and I think it's something that you're reiterating in a way right now, he basically said that we're going to go from the, you know, a a commodity of things to a, a commodity of experiences. And that may be where, you're talking about how people are putting a lot of money into these things right now, right? Whether it's NFTs, whether it's cards, whatever it is that they can't go do. They're spending money on that remotely. And when things open up, when you know more people are immune, we have herd immunity. If we ever get to that point, I'm sure someday we will. But when this all takes place or we open up events where people that have been vaccinated can attend those events, that then creates the opportunity for the commodity of experience and people go back out and start enjoying dinners and travel and leisure and all these things. And what does that do to, you know, even cards to that point or these things, things that are things essentially is what I'm saying. What happens to those? Um, And that's kind of concerning as well. But yeah, I think best case scenarios, things obviously open back up and almost in a free market sense whatever's best will survive the future change.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and we see during recessions, uh, you know, luxury goods, uh, you know, thing, things kind of recede, as we saw during the global financial crisis. Uh, I mean, people loved the McDonald's dollar menu. Um, and as we see kind of that that shrinks, um, you know, at the same time, people who are, like we said, your middle, you know, average class citizens that have made a thousand percent on top shot, and they're sitting potentially on auto debt, um, and they have other other needs. You know, what what really happens then? Um, and it's very easy, like we said, in, in 280 characters to kind of give your, your bullish thesis. But when we have Corona, and for an entire month, not a single person was touching any sort of risk asset going along, um, it, then it kind of opens up the eyes. Um, you know, at this point in time, it's very rosy and it's very easy, you know, when you see people doubling their money overnight um, to, to, to partake in that. But um, as we kind of see the the long-term cycle, uh, we see people kind of guessing where uh, these assets will be in, in 15 years and such. And that that's extremely hard um, against the macro drop, uh, you know, the macro drop. Um, these tech companies really haven't made any money. Um, we saw in February treasury yields rose. Bitcoin fell 20 percent. We see these frothy tech companies that don't make any money. They fell considerably. Um, so even if we see a, a bump in treasury yields or a Fed governor even talk about raising rates, it, it pulls risk asset ba- assets back. So what happens when we actually enter into a recession of, of some time? What happens to those risk assets? Are we going to see these long lines and queues of people lining up to, to spend exposable income when they actually don't have it? Um, So, yeah, I I don't know. You don't know. um, But I I think it's only fair once we kind of see uh, the price action kind of recede in an actual economy then we can actually make a a truthful assumption.
0: Corey, I know you said it's it's impossible to see 10 to 15 years from now, but do you think beyond the craze that we're seeing right now or that we saw er earlier this year, now we're seeing more of a bear market? And I know you said people that have been in this space for the short amount of time that they have been, they, they haven't quite seen a bear market yet. So it's interesting to see how people are reacting right now. Um, do you think that there is a place for NFTs within the collectible market beyond 2021? I, I don't know. I don't know what a good time frame is. I don't know if, if two years or five years from now, honestly, I, I'm not It you know, at just at some point within the foreseeable future, if, if there's a place for them within, within the collectible class, um, Mm-hmm. if If they'll even be worth uh, if they'll be seen as legitimate both legitimate collectibles and as a viable asset and if not, what improvements do you think need to be made either from dapper labs or from from other nft um, companies or corporations t- to retain a, a legitimate collector base?
2: Yeah, I mean i I really don't know. I mean we're still so early kind of in the cycle. I don't know if people who are investing in them now are are holding them, you know, for, for 10, 20 years. It's very easy on Twitter to say you are um, versus when, you know, the market's kind of collapsing and, and you, you kind of, you know, pull out. So um, to be honest, I, I, I really don't know. Um, we really haven't seen too much um, of examples of, of anything blockchain based with with the recession so i I really don't know we had a nice litmus test during covid um in covid i mean we saw risk assets we saw crypto uh collapse so i i really don't know if we were actually tested um it's a very hard question versus you know the short term versus the long term because people say hey we're moving into this digital space um so i'm going to invest in this digital space Um, I mean, maybe in 15 years, the, the biggest top shots are worth, you know, potentially more than they are now. I think that's actually very well in the realm of possibilities. Um, but some of the, some of the cheaper, you know, NFTs, I, I don't know if we look at top shots, if you, you guys are more in the NBA than me. But if you kind of see a mediocre plus player that has an above average dunk, you know, where is he in 15 years? I mean, if you think back 15 years to the NFL um, you know, if it was an above average player that made a random kind of NFL catch, um, you know, we, we see growing talent in these sports leagues grow. Um, so I, I think at some point in time, it kind of becomes a factor of supply. We, we've seen the demand and we've seen the, the kind of random social media influence. But as that supply grows... I don't know if that can withhold at current times a, a recession. So if we kind of said that the NFT supply grows by 10 and the new wealth money kind of you know just bumps up a little bit, uh, I, I really don't know. And, and to be honest, I, I think Dapper Labs really don't want um, this very quick turnover and to make the quick 5% on these ma- these huge moments. I think Dapper Labs would absolutely want a longer term business model where they have people that aren't getting turned off by not being able to get a pack and and not being able to get their money out. Um, So I I think it's kind of a a strange dichotomy. Um, We look at kind of the present and the price expansion, um, and then we look at where is this going to be in five to eight years when the supply is exorbitant um, and and the economic conditions have maybe tightened a little bit. Um, it's anybody's guess what happened
1: at that point in time. I just, I definitely don't want to end up the guy who pushed back so hard that it totally flamed him in the future. I mean, I certainly was not a believer in cryptocurrency in its infancy, right? I think, I think there was a lot of people, I mean, and, and I'm sure you, maybe from an investment standpoint, were one of those people that were like, look, we don't know anything about this. Large sums of money being dumped into it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a good way to lose large sums of money. And then on the other hand, we have, you know, 23 year olds driving purple Lambos, right? Because of it. So, you know, here we are today and I look at the NFT space as a whole and I realize that there's certainly something here, right? As you said, that that we're going into this media, digital media world where all of this stuff is going to continue to grow and foster and companies are going to recognize the success of this moment in time. And whether we become a, a commodity of experiences again, people are still going to chase what was successful right now. So I think for those reasons, we're going to see this trend continue and and sort of in a minor way, the success of a lot of things, because something has to fail, right? Not everything can be successful all at once. And, And just like the players that you mentioned, Jesse and I were talking about this when we were trying to get the Skype stuff set up. You've got these random players with random plays and people are listing them for whatever they can, because again, I think it's a cash grab. But at some point, something has to be worth nothing. Like we will get to the point where you open packs and there's it's not worth shit. But that's the risk of opening a pack of cards is that you could spend $50 on an old pack or $8 on this pack or whatever and open it and nothing in it has any value whatsoever. I Just what throws me off about Top Shot is we we don't have that. Like what's the cheapest Top Shot you can find? I'd have to go look, is it $15? I mean, I could open a pack of cards right now and there'd be a card in it, not worth a penny. It was probably worth what it was cost to produce, right? That's it. So I think that's one of the the things that I continue to worry about. And like you've mentioned, if I had a a top shot, if I had a moment that had a hundred thousand dollar value, I'm selling that instantaneously today. If I can get it, I'm not even holding for the future. Cause I don't know if this is going to be here and when is the next chance that I'm going to lo- it's like a lottery ticket. When's the next time I'm going to spend $8 on a pack and hit on something that's worth a hundred thousand dollars. You would cash out. Why would you wait? Right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think if you can rip a pack and, and instantaneously uh, you know, without a doubt kind of retain, you know, increase that value. Um, it kind of becomes a, a speculation grab. So um, I mean, when I was a broker, I talked to a ton of speculative investors in, in tons of different instruments. And if something is kind of too good to be true, and you're kind of promised this exorbitant return, uh, you know, typically it's not going to work out. Um, you know, I, I, I talk to investors and traders, and they say, "I want the little risk possible, but the maximum reward." And I tell them that 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 really does not exist. And we've kind of looked at asset classes; um, you have to risk to reward. So Um, I I think history has proven to us, um, you know, if you walk in with that attitude, the rug kind of gets pulled out um, at the last second as as those those big buyers kind of um, subside. Um, So it it can be really interesting, especially looking at who holds, um, you know, a big part of the market and a big part of those, you know, top, top moments. And um, really, uh, you know, no one expected COVID. Um, you know, like like I said, we saw companies like Apple who have more cash on hand than the yearly GDP of a country like Portugal, um, you know, absolutely crater to, to those sort of pressures. So um, I, I think the moment you think that you are invincible and you think for sure you know what's going to happen next is, is sometimes when that random overnight gap kind of catches you by, by surprise.
1: I, and I don't know if you're referencing, I, I had put a, a link in our show sheet and it mentioned uh, Darren Heitner, I think is his name. And he, he put this tweet out with a graph that basically said that the top 1000 NBA top shot accounts are worth more than the remaining 350,000 accounts and over half or roughly 800,000 users have never purchased a moment. So it's, it's really, it's really imbalanced when you look at ownership and it sort of value in the market. But I guess it would lead me to asking you, so the people that are in, the people that invested heavily, not because they were the first people to, to buy in and, and see a an artificial inflation and sell and make money, but the people that were too late and, and overpaid and are now in the market and they're invested thousands of dollars, let's say. What do you say to those people? What should those people do? Is it like the world of stocks? Do you just hold and, and wait for a rebound or – You cut your losses. I mean, I I know you can't predict the future, but if you're in that far and you were late to the dinner, what do you do? No, that's actually a a good question. I think it relates
2: all back to to trader psychology. And it doesn't matter if it's top shot or physical cards or derivatives or, or equities. Before you get into a trade, you have to know two prices. You have to know when you want to get out on the top side, and you have to know when you want to get out on the bottom side. I think a lot of people have misinterpreted this quote unquote uh, diamond hands and all, all this, this paper hands and all of these stupid memes. Um, when in reality, you know, what that actually means is if an asset goes against you and you say, for example, I will take a 30% haircut on this, that means when it hits 30%, you get out. Um, and I think a lot of people have actually reversed that and they say, I am down 75% on this investment. I am diamond hands, I'm not going to get out because I, I'm just so cool and, and it doesn't affect my emotions. <laughs> right. You've completely, you know, uh, gotten that that entire take wrong and, and you wouldn't probably last the first round of interviews on any place on Wall Street. Um, it's all about managing risk and you have to know those levels. And for those people, um, when you take on a risk asset, uh, if you have, let's say, just say a thousand bucks and you say, I want to risk, we'll say four hundred um, you probably shouldn't get into one asset and then risk that that downside. You should probably get into four or five and then risk, you know, a bottom percentage there, and then kind of double what your potential loss is and say, you know, if I invest a thousand dollars, if I want to risk four hundred, that means maybe I want to gain eight hundred, and then over time I only have to be right, you know, half 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 the amount of times, and I'll, I'll be profitable. Um, so my advice to those people is. Uh, be prepared for the next surge. You know, do your research, do your education now, get your brokerage account set up now so you can take advantage of the next rocket that takes off and you are in a position. So you aren't the person that's texting me when GME is at an all time high asking me, how do I set up my brokerage account? How do I trade options. (laughs) You know, what you should do is, is do your homework now and then be ready for when that next asset bubble happens. So um, I mean, with that, we, we really don't know. I mean, NBA Top Shot is at, like we said, at its infancy stage. Um, and as we look, when we're recording this podcast, we had Johnson & Johnson just had a vaccine um, that that caused blood clots in, in six females. Um, you know, that's six out of seven million. You could go to your Walgreens and buy any over-the-counter drug and have something give you blood clots, much more than six people out of six million. But how many people out of that are now not going to get a vaccine? And how long is that going to push forward the below 75% inoculation rate? I think six people, six very small class of females who had the blood clot, uh, you know, them pushing people for not getting the vaccine may have then in the future pushed the Fed for not raising interest rates out another month or quarter. And that have raised, you know, billions of dollars to market cap to, to kind of tech companies. So, it's really interesting um, as kind of you look at the 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 bad news versus good news, where we're kind of in a cycle now where where bad news might actually uh, help the deflationary cause and help push back the Fed to raising interest rates. The Fed is giving you every excuse possible why they want uh, you know asset prices to rise and they're not going to raise interest rates. We need maximum employment even though people who work these low-paying jobs are are getting paid to to not work and they won't come back to their jobs. Um, We see a lot of deflationary pressure um, kind of across the board in that sense. And and so if that continues and if the Fed pushes out their interest rate rises, that will help these risk assets. Um, Whereas if the vaccine rollout is perfect and everyone is inoculated by late Q3 and we open back up, we hit inflation, we raise interest rates that'll hurt these sort of risk assets. So it's kind of counterintuitive. But if you are along these frothy, you know, double your income overnight, like things like Dogecoin, you actually want kind of bad news to happen. And you want the Fed to kind of have every excuse possible uh, to keep this circus going.
0: I think uh, just one thing you you said in that explanation is um I think that it applies anywhere, but like you know, NFTs, cards, alternative investments, you know, more traditional investments. Is that um, if if something doesn't go your way, and if you've put your money into something, it's always wise to even before you put a dollar into something, always have. a, a price in mind or, or a price point in mind of whether or not, whether it appreciates or depreciates over time of when you sh- feel like you should get out, even before you you look at the asset altogether in the first place and and before um, before you put in any money into it. And I, I thought that was a great point that you made. And it, yeah. it applies everywhere,
2: as we say, kind of in the street. I mean, green. On the screen, your entire point of getting into this is profit. Green on the screen, um, it's making a profit. If you're into this for making a profit, and you take profit at you know 400%, um, you know the, the the risk of you kicking yourself versus a little more return versus that kind of subsiding to you know your break even. Um, you know, we, we, we've seen the, the kind of the odds of that happening. And, and then trader psychology happens. So if you put a thousand bucks into a risky asset and it goes up to four thousand and then it goes back to, you know, fifteen hundred, um, you're not going to get out. You're going to wait until that goes back up. And that kind of goes below your cost basis and, and you're going to wait. So you want the, your reason to get out, not, to, you know, dependent on the market. You want to set your risk parameters before you get in the market or else you're going to tell yourself every story possible. Um, you know, especially right now in the frothy assets, you know, there. if you bought an NBA top shot and it went down 20%, you know, why is that? If you can't explain that down to the absolute detail, um, you know, then you have to be expecting that, that, that could double in price that could, you know, chop in half. Um, and that's why we have those risk parameters is because you just don't know you can't will the market the way you want and we kind of see that in fantasy football um with an unproven prospect you know people kind of fantasy want and once they kind of fantasy want they never they never uh you know relinquish that that sort of take
1: i you know i feel the same way about chase Edmond. i feel that's that's been going on for far too long people fantasy want and it's just not going to happen uh i just I, i don't see it this year either uh Let me ask you a question when inevitably when the economy opens back up, when we hit herd immunity, when numerous other sports NFTs come out, whether, you know, even you brought this up, baseball, you know, uh, football, hockey, all these other things are going on. Speaking about top shot specifically, what do you predict if you had to make a prediction? What's the long term prediction for top shot as a whole? Does it does it maintain this this strength? And this popularity, or is the economy of experiences and more competition and a different market, does that really squeeze the life out of it? And is it just another? Is it just another thing out there in the universe?
2: Yeah, I mean, if we kind of roll back to the Q1 and we see the the retail stock trading explosion, um, you know that that seems extremely present. But when in reality. Uh, retail stock trading is back to pre-COVID levels, so it kind of seemed like everybody and their mom uh, all of a sudden became uh, a day trader. Um, you know that that's very far in in, in the past now. Um, so I don't know really what's going to happen as the economy opens up, um, and as people don't have the time to sit in line, they're not you know getting these stimulus checks. Um, you know maybe they don't have the the easiest monetary lifestyle in the history of human humanity. Um, you know, I, I think all these things have come to a point that have reached um, you know, the, the feverish aspect of, of NBA top shots. But um, you know, it, it's a hard question because there's the short term price coming back and then there's the long term appreciation. So um, I think it's kind of two questions as far as what happens to the price of the non one percent kind of moments in the next 18 months and then kind of what happens in the next seven to eight years. Um, I I really don't know if the technology for the metaverse um, will be here in a few years. Well, like I said, it makes a lot of sense in 280 characters. Um, But we'll we'll see if if people are kind of on their back in their VR goggles, um, as you say, kind of seeing the Swiss Alps and kind of showing their friends. Um, You know, I I, I really don't know. Um, If I had to make a strong take, I would say that 99% of those uh, Top Shot moments are probably going to decline in value. Um, and I think maybe some of the absolute rarest LeBron James will probably appreciate in the long run. Um, it really all depends. I mean, all eyes will be on the market in Q3 as we see just how intense uh, this inflation is. And, you know, we had a hot print today. We had a hot print on PMIs earlier. Um, you know, this very well could lead to something we haven't seen before. We saw the, the Great Depression came on the heels of the roaring 20s. And as, you know, kind of fever speculation took place where, um, you know, they said your average janitor or your everyday person was putting their savings into the stock market before it crashed. Um, so we, we really, at this point in time, don't know. And if anybody is telling you that this is the collectible to have in 15 years, uh, they're probably wrong. And if somebody thinks that, you know, this is uh, a Ponzi scheme and it's all going to go to zero, I I think that is probably a little bit wrong as well. Um, I think you have some wealthy buyers that have entered the space um, that may have the luxury not to close when the economy kind of rescinds. Um, So, yeah, I I think we'll all kind of see. um, But I I am very interested in the supply aspect um, and kind of top shots being the the first to market um, when there is I mean, even in in themselves, kind of if they get the licensing for all the different sports, I kind of think within themselves, what is the competition? Um, so I kind of turn the question back to you. I, I heard Dapper talking about, you know, the rarity of a car that is, uh, you know, the, the pop count of, of, of their birthday or, you know, kind of one of, of whatever. Um, does that ha- hold true in the, the physical card market? Or do you kind of see all of that as kind of,
1: um, you know, the, the greater pop count kind of as a whole, Jesse and I were literally talking about this pre-show because what I found out with, with the top shot moments, I, I had made a point on a show where I said, how are they going to discern a difference in value from one moment to another? Let's say they print, or let's say that there's a digital asset version of a LeBron James dunk and there's a hundred of them out there. Right. And it's it's you know, numbered 1 through 100. And they're all exactly the same because unlike cards, there is no difference with the quality of them, right? They are literally a one for one, all 100 of them. So you find out, I said, well, how are they going to do it? They're going to have to make the first of the 100 the most valuable, right? Because there's no other way to necessarily peg a value to it. And suddenly that's what we found out they did. And Jesse and I were talking about it, and and it does happen in the card market. And I'm sure Jesse can speak to this a lot more. Um, it, it's just such a curious thing in cards. I think it's less of a powerful use because there is quality differences.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And in, in cards grading essentially builds in a a type of scarcity so um whether it's you know like a base card or or something like if it's a base card it's it's more artificial scarcity just because companies like panini and tops they they don't tell us the true print run of a certain card unless if it's serial numbered so um there there may be there may be a, a PSA 10 pop count of just over 100, but you never know. There could be 20,000 of these things printed. Just you know, just not not. We might see numbers that aren't dissimilar to, to Top Shot, um, you know, uh, Moment like whatever the Moment is out of um, the Moment count. So um, grading definitely uh, it, it it trumps, uh, I guess, a serial number. Um, but I mean, if you have if you have, you know, something that's a, a rookie card that's numbered 1 out of 100, 100 out of 100, or maybe the player's jersey number, and l- assuming all three of those serial numbers are in the same grade, same condition, they're all PSA 10, then those those three cards that I just mentioned, those three serial numbers, will have a premium over, you know, something that's number 15 out of 100, or 70 out of 100, Um just just because that's just uh, it's it's just how it is. P- people like ha- seeing the or or taking ownership of the first car that was produced in, um, you know, like the assembly line or the last one or the one that just represents the, the jersey number. I've even seen cards that are number 23 just because of the significance of Jordan and LeBron. Like it's just it's so it's so obscure. But even something like that. I've seen have a premium over any other serial number, assuming they're all in the same condition. But yeah, for for sure. Uh, grading and, uh, and the condition of the card trumps um, it, it'll, it'll trump the serial number first and foremost.
1: If you're a person though, that's that appreciates, let's say you literally like art appreciated a moment. Let's say there was a hundred, you know, 50 people that appreciated a moment and they didn't really care about the long-term value of it. They would look at numbers 50 to hundred versus one to 49, right? Because what does it matter to them that the value of it is higher if they're buying it because they, they want to appreciate what it is, you know, as a commodity. I think that's kind of where I keep going back to it. I struggle with the idea that we don't know how they're valued. And then they're only valued solely on which one is the lowest number and it's just such a strange thing when you sort of reflect on it. But again, much like artwork in the eyes of the beholder, that's how this takes place. I don't know how people represent that number. Like you said, the number 23, um,
2: you know, if we look at artwork, it, it has nothing to do with, with, with the number. It really has, it draws back to the quality and um, in, in really what, what the artist kind of made. So um, it, it seems like it, it's, and you guys can tell me more than me um, the art the the, uh, the it's kind of random I mean you kind of get in line and you kind of get something and it's got a number that has some sort of significance but whereas the art world uh, I mean you've you've uh, you've acquired something that's that nobody else can replicate um, and I, I think that is kind of the, the the big draw for art is that you know I can show you the art piece in the wall and you can't replicate it Whereas, you know, with an NBA top shot or an NFT, I can show you something that that's literally 100 percent the same thing on my computer. Um, So, yeah, I I have no idea where where the the, the value of that goes. Um, I have no idea, you know, in 20 years, if we're walking around in this augmented um, reality, if someone kind of points to a painting and says, you know, I bought this in 2021. Look at this metadata. It's the original versus if you go to your friend's house. Uh, and they have the same thing. Um, and they paid, you know, you know 0.0001% of the same thing. I, I don't really understand um, that quote unquote flex. Um, I don't know if that has to do with the appreciation of crypto as a risk asset. Um, I, I really don't know. I really don't know. And I think we have to come back to this conversation once we've seen um, an economic downturn and and really can can kind of point fingers. but I don't think anyone who is super bullish in the space um, or super bearish really has an appropriate take until we see
1: um, an actual market um you know come to light. I think that makes it the most the most likely would be as you brought up the augmented reality like that that is the universe where, I picture this being the most successful where, yeah, you are walking around with VR headset or you can have these things displayed in such a way that they're readily available because right now, how do I show some of my, my NFTs or my digital artwork? I pull it up from a phone, which everybody has on them all the time, which is a likely answer, but I don't have a piece of artwork that's six inches by three inches, right? Every piece of artwork that I've ever owned is significantly bigger. I mean, so it seems it seems like you have to sort of bend your mind into a world that's either fully digital that you're immersed in or we find a way different to display it. And these moments, I think, because they're novel, because they're the first, it's created a unique situation. And that's what's really helped it survive. And that kind of takes me back to that question before. When the market's flooded with competition, with other sports, with competitive sports, even with football we or you know, basketball, we have different companies making different cards when when you have similarity what does that then do to things i mean it's it's not an impossibility for top shot eventually to maybe not be the the most viable nba creator and maybe they don't hold the licenses right maybe it shifts so how do we then value the the old producer of the cards when top shot had the license for nba from 2020 to 2026 and then suddenly from 26 to twenty thirty five it was some other company do we then still value those the same way are they more valuable I think there's a lot of questions that you can ask on the subject and Jesse i don't know what your thoughts are on that because we know that is panini does their football contract runs out at the end of is it this year is it twenty twenty two is that when panini loses their nFL
0: I'm not sure actually i'd I'd have to look that up but they've um i think they've been they've had the exclusive rights to produce football cards since 20, I want to say 16, 16, I 2016. Think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, it could be, it could be running out in 20, 2022 or 2023. I'd have to look it up, but um, yeah, I I've, I've, I've heard rumblings myself that, that their, their time is coming up soon, unless if they, um, you know, uh, extend the deal.
1: Yeah. So it's, so I think there's a wide variance of outcomes out there. I'm just glad Corey that you, you did exactly what you said you were going to do. You came from a point of neutrality and really kind of played both sides of the fence. And I think it, it put a perspective on it that I haven't heard from anybody else. I've listened to a lot of other takes on top shot NFTs in general, and it's always more from sort of the digital point of view. What will the future be? You know, what's the interest right now? And nobody really talks about how did we get here and where are we going and I think that this is probably going to open a lot of eyes for people because I mean, I mean, this is a subject that clearly you're you have a wealth of knowledge in, and it translated to NFT and Top Shot is really important because we've got a lot of people that I think every I think most people are attempting to sell, but there are people out there that believe it's the long term. And hearing what you're saying should concern people that aren't holding things of vast rarity, um, and and I don't know if that's that's sort of your belief that short of holding something that you know is rare maybe you shouldn't necessarily be holding anything at all yeah i i guess w- what is rare and are you kind of de beers
2: who are hoarding diamonds in the basement and kind of controlling the supply um right. i mean if you took advantage of the blockchain and, and you invested in let's say a dinosaur fossil um you know th- that's nothing i can pull out of my ass You know, that's something I can replicate and create a digital copy of. I couldn't make a plastic version that'd be worth nothing compared to the real thing. Um, So I I think kind of as the money supply in the U.S. explodes, I think people have gravitated towards the word scarcity as they should. Um, But I I think they have to be very careful when you can literally by a click of a button at a comma or a zero onto a supply, kind of put a border around it and say, hey, it's kind of limited versus, you know, if this hysteria happened versus, um, you know, collecting a player's shoes after a game, you know, that, that is one for one. There could be a ledger for that. That is that is truly very unique. Um, but for some reason, because we say something is one of 2,000, that somehow adds additional value. Um, so, you know, I'm not too sure. We, we have 150 years of cards. We have more of that kind of in stamps. Um, so, as collectors, I, I kind of bring the question back to you. You know, you've seen cards and stamps and things like this that are more recent have a high value versus something that's a century old that is worthless. I, I mean, I personally, I have stamps from the 1800s that are worth zero dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I think a lot of people think they're they're first to a segment, and that and first equals. You know the highest future representation of that cash flow. Um, so I, I guess can you guys speak of um, you know pop count versus you know time um, in, in kind of the relation to that in price?
1: Uh,
0: I mean, it 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 really just depends on the asset first and foremost. Um, it depends on on the player. Um, you'll you'll have something that's serial numbered. I mean, you you can have. Uh, I don't know, a one of one Trey Young or I, I'm, I'm even trying to think of somebody more obscure, maybe like somebody like a Carl Anthony Towns or or a, a even a one of one Justin Jefferson. I mean, something like that isn't going to go for nearly as much as Michael Jordan's main rookie card, which there are over 300 of. So it, it really it, it I think in, in terms of cards, it, it depends it mostly depends on the actual athlete and the card itself first, before even looking at scarcity. Um, I mean, with, I, I mean, you, I guess you can say that to an extent. I mean, I know there there are certain rookie cards that are, you know, were at one time seen as valuable, but then all of a sudden, like like one that I'm thinking of right off the top of my head is um, a 1986 Topps Barry Bonds rookie. And that sounds like a really big car. That sounds like you know one of the best baseball players of all time, the home run leader. Um, no matter how how controversial he was, but um, there's over 50,000 of them graded, and it's it's just it's 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 wild when um, when something that had so much potential and uh, was was so overproduced in, in the time when that was like, that really kind of kickstarted the junk wax here in the, in the mid, in the mid to late eighties. So, um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a balancing act where, uh, you look at the player first and then, and then the pop count next. But if the pop count just severely, like if, if there were over a hundred thousand of of those Michael Jordan, Fleer rookie PSA tens, they, they're not going to be worth $750,000 ever, not ever. I, I don't care if there are, 5 million people that want that card. There's a hundred thousand of them. It's not going to be that hard to get. You're going to see them on pop up on eBay and other online, um, uh, buy and sell platforms over and over. They're not going to be that rare. So, um, yeah, with, with cards, it's, it's, it's certainly, it, it it's certainly a balancing act.
1: My dad, massive stamp collector, massive presidential autograph collector. The stamps though have lost a ton of value, but I think what, Gets forgotten or has a lot of built-in nuance is adoption, right? Like the the people that that continue to buy into something or keep it alive, right? You've you've had a ton of people that have adopted what's taking place with uh, you know Top Shot, and obviously we have a long-standing level of adoption with sports cards, and that's what's kept it afloat. Um, that's that's kind of my concern long-term. Is when you price people out, like if you, only people can really only afford to buy packs, right? I don't know what the upper level of the people that have the most monetary disposable income are, but most people can only afford to buy packs. And many of those people aren't buying the $230 most expensive packs because for a lot of, for a lot of people that really price them out. So I don't know what happens in the long term when people can't get packs and the only ones that are available are maybe too expensive. And then when they're getting packs, they're not getting hits. It's like, that's where you lose your adoption to me. And then you necessarily need people to bridge that gap. That is, There's no real way to display these, right? They're not physical like cards. They're not like artwork. You then necessarily need to get those people to continue to commit to stay in that adoption period where they're not really getting great stuff. They can't sell their stuff. They can't buy the stuff because it's too expensive. And there's no way to display it because it's so new wave that it's not, you know, how do you show it off, right? You need a collective community. And that's what we have. The card world has it. And clearly, you know, Top Shot has it. There's Discord groups, websites, forums. All that you really need a community to make it survive, I think, and, and to go through this this period. And if there is a deep recession, you know, worse than what we've already dealt with coming, or whatever the future is. And again, Corey, you would know way better than I would on this subject. Are those people going to band together and stick with it? Because those mm-hmm. are your buyers. That's your that is your basis for your platform. And if those people decide to go, what happens?
2: Yeah. No. A- absolutely. Um, And we don't know what really happens uh, until we're kind of faced with that. And I think that kind of holds a testament to to cards and, and, you know, maybe stamps to a little bit is, you know, we've had periods where if you have a box of of rare stamps and let's say they're worth 10 grand and we go through a recession and they continue to sit in your basement. And then, you know, by the time we we kind of get lifted back up, um, you know, you haven't sold those. Whereas I think with NBA Top Shot, we have people literally staring at uh, at the price from from minute to minute. Um, so I think when that happens, I think people are in this feverish moment uh, of speculation. I think quantitative easing has has left them with with not many outcomes. Um, you know, you can't put your money in a savings account. Um, so it's people really chasing yield. Um, and I think that the points I made earlier to you know the monetary and fiscal stimulus. In people being at home and having the excessive money um, has really kind of pointed us in in this kind of this, this red direction. So, um, like I said, I, I don't know where we're going in the future. I don't know if it really has any sort of utility. Um, but, yeah, we, we will see, um, you know, once we have an actual dip and we have an actual sort of recession, um, you know, we've had some tremors. Um, but, you know, I'm very curious if, if this were to happen, um, you know, kind of pre-COVID. Um, what the top shop market would look like if we had, you know, everybody running for the hills, buying US dollars, parking their money in safe haven assets, and then leaving, you know, even parabolic assets like like Apple in, in other tech stocks. You know, if you're selling Apple um, in some very, very sexy tech stocks, um, during COVID, you know, what are you gonna do with a uh, you know kind of a, a random you know layup by somebody that you may have made you know fifty percent on? I, I really don't know, um, and that's kind of why it comes back to to you know kind of psychology and what people think at the time, um, and if the social media kind of influence continues. Um, I mean, you can't go on Twitter or you know Saturday Night Live without people you know talking about NFTs and NBA Top Shot at, at, at kind of nauseum. So. Um, you know, as we know, cool things always kind of subside. Um, and when that happens in an asset class, you typically have a run. Um, so, again, I, I don't know where this is going to go. Um, but, you know, the only thing I'm saying is kind of all all signs point to being kind of the, the perfect scenario for the price accumulation of NBA Top Shot. And, and that's certainly, um, you know, not a discount to Dapper. You know they've they've made an incredible product with incredible profit margins um, at the right time. So you know kudos to them. Um, You know I'm just kind of bringing a point of view of you know how have we gotten to this point and what are some possible scenarios of where this could potentially go.
1: Well, uh, Corey, let me let me hit you with one final question before we get out of here, and I'm going to make this easy on you. If if I gave you ten thousand dollars. And I said, you can spend it on only one item and it's of your choice, any player you get to choose. And you could choose between a top shot moment or any card that was $10,000 in the universe. What are you selecting? Oh God. Well, I, I know absolutely
2: nothing about NBA. I only know about really <laughs> soccer and NFL. Um, but I mean, honestly, if if Jerome Powell and the other Fed governors are saying, Listen, we're not going to raise interest rates for a while. Even if we have inflation, we are the government. And even if CPI has been skewed to show that CPI uh, and inflation really isn't impacting the economy when it is, we're we're trying to hint, hint, wink, wink, tell you that risk assets will continue. I would probably buy uh, an option on a tech ETF that's like 3% out of the money and and try to 10x my money. Um, you know, I would probably be extremely risk, risky with it. Um, you know, I'm a very kind of risk pro person. So <laughs> for a car, <MacArthur, laughs> I, I really don't know. Um, so <laughs> that's a, ter- a terrible answer to your question because I don't know any- anything about NBA. Um, the last NBA game I watched was the Detroit Pistons versus the Los Angeles Lakers when the Pistons won the title with Chauncey. Um,
1: that's good. That's a, that's a while back. Well, man, I, I'm so glad that you reached out, uh, on Twitter because in all honesty, man, you, you are again, a wealth of knowledge. I've yet to listen to anybody that was as eloquent and intelligent and, you know, thought provoking with the statements that we're making as you are. So this is this is a great interview, and I'm I'm glad that we'll be able to share this with people. Is there anywhere that I mean, people can find you your artwork? I mean, is there a place that you've got it listed that people could check that out? Sure. Well, I guess before
2: I dive into the the digital artwork and can sell my you know product to, to seven billion people, um, you can find my artwork at at CL Paintings um, on Instagram, um, and CL Paintings at Gmail. If you have an inquiry, I, I do ship all throughout the U.S. Um, and then my twin, my Twitter is fantasy numbers and I try to kind of blend what I've learned, um, working in risk management and in the markets, um, and learning about game theory and, and sort of things like that, uh, to best ball. So I, I kind of try to compare my experience trading, uh, to best ball in NFL, uh, with the occasional kind of asshat comment about the market. Um, so th- th- that's where you can find me for now. Um, yeah. And I really appreciate you having me and, and kind of given, Uh, a contrarian
1: opinion to, to this space. I love it, man. Well, I really appreciate having you on. I know Jesse does as well. We've been going back and forth. We're working on this, this, you know, show information and we're like, God, we're like, what do we ask him? And, you know, how do we make this work and try to put it together? And I mean, you really made this very easy because it's just clearly something that you've spent a lot of time, you know, doing your research on. Um, so thanks, man. Everybody, check out Corey uh, at Fantasy Numbers. Uh, check out his artwork. That would be a, a huge bonus as well. I'm gonna check it out. I, I still don't know what it is that you do necessarily, other than the fact that it's abstract. Is that one behind you? Yeah, yeah.
2: You really okay. can't see. It. Yeah, I use uh, I use. I mean, I've been painting my whole life, but I use poor painting. So I use gravity, not a brush, and then I use okay. a, a torch, uh, and I try to bring out some of the more dense colors within um, what I've painted kind of under it. And then I kind of just tilt the canvas and and I kind of go from there. So, um, it creates a very unique, uh, piece and it it doesn't take me, uh, 30 hours like it used to with a brush. It takes me only a few hours. So, um, it's a fun way to paint and,
1: uh, I really enjoy it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much for coming on guys. Again, follow Jesse on Twitter at planet underscore fatness and on Instagram at flippity flip cards. Another great one. And uh, we will be back next week on Clear the Cash.